0: So I'm very excited to share with you this uh, material on Old Testament archaeology. I'm not an archaeologist, as you know, I'm a philosopher by academic training, but I'm a a very interested amateur as an apologist, and I have uh, published some um, material here and there uh, on archaeology in the Bible. Um, You should have that handout for the uh, British Museum tour, and uh, this is the first year Uh, that I get to lead the tour myself and put together the the tour itinerary. So I'm I'm doubly excited about that, having uh, tagged along the last couple of years on the uh, guided tours that we uh, have done. Uh, You have access in somewhere. The material that I've sent through includes the PDF of the PowerPoint that I'm showing, so you should have access to all of that as well. So again, you don't have to worry too much about uh, taking notes and the pictures will all be uh, available to you should you want to look it up along with lots of um, uh, suggestions of other resources online and uh, offline uh, to look at. Anyway, let's, uh, let's get uh, diving in here. Always good to define your terms. Philosophers love defining things. Uh, so just to make sure <laughs> we're on the same page here. Archaeology. Uh, quick definition is the, uh, the systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour. So there's a kind of fuzzy division uh, between textual history and archaeology, but there, there is sometimes an overlap, in as much as, of course, it's archaeologists who often dig up the ancient texts, or uh, they may f- uh, dig up a bit of pottery that's got some text written or scratched onto it, uh, etc. Um, but usually, we tend to think of the sort of uh, the written uh, biblical information as the the uh, the domain of the uh, the textual critics and the uh, theologians and so on and leave the the sort of hard uh, objects the buildings the pottery the coins and so on uh, to the uh, archaeologists first and foremost and then integrate that knowledge into our uh, theological understanding of uh, of the Bible. Let's start with a bit of biblical geography because well this is a useful thing to know if you don't already um, as we trace through the timeline of the Bible um, starting here with uh, with Abraham, the call of Abraham uh, from the of the Chaldees, from the city of Ur. Uh, Abraham, um, called by God to leave his home city, uh, wanders around the place, uh, ends up uh, in Israel. Israel uh, goes uh, with Joseph and you know the story of Joseph and the Technicolor coat and all of that ends up uh, in Egypt uh, during a time of famine and then getting enslaved. Uh, the Hebrews getting enslaved in Egypt at the exodus big event in uh, Jewish history leaving uh, Egypt wandering around the desert for a a long period of time and ending up crossing back into uh, the Palestinian Israel sort of area here and then there's a a second kind of uh, exodus uh, at a conquest um, sort of uh, 600 years or so before Jesus's time Uh, when they go into uh, babylon uh, and the babylonian empire conquers them they go into babylon they stay in babylon for a while uh, and uh, then political changes happen as are prophesied and they come back uh, into the promised land uh, for a second time Uh, and then um, a few things happen after that in biblical history and then there's a gap between the end of our old testament texts and uh, Jesus' lifetime of a few hundred years called the in- Inter-Testament uh, Period. And there's a whole literature there, uh, but it doesn't end up in our uh, Bibles. Uh, and then uh, from Jesus' time, of course, uh, you then get the spread of Christianity, particularly through the missionary journeys of Paul that Luke talks about, into the rest of the, the Roman Empire of that time, uh, through, uh, through Greece, and all the way uh, by the end of the book of Acts into Rome in Italy. So there's these sort of major movements of biblical history, uh, starting uh, from uh, Abraham, the, the uh, Egypt, coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land, uh, the, uh, the exile in Babylonia and coming back from that, and then Jesus and we're into New Testament times. To put that uh, sort of geographical uh, walk through in terms of the historical timeline that you've Gone. We'll keep coming back, referring to this. Uh, this refers to the the Old Testament story. Here you see this the patriarchs with Abraham, Exodus, conquest and settlement of Israel. Uh, they have one kingdom that gets divided into two. Th- then those two kingdoms gradually get conquered. We go into uh, the Babylonian exile. And this uh, down here is putting that in terms of what's going on in the rest of world history in that area with. Uh, um, the, the, the Assyrians and the Hittites and the Babylonians and, and so on the, the Persians etc or to put it in terms of the, when the biblical uh, books are talking about there's a timeline that you've also got access to uh, same major movements but putting the, the biblical literature in terms of the periods uh, that it's uh, covering there so a major division in, in thinking about how the Bible relates to archaeology is this distinction you'll come across between the so-called uh, minimalists and maximalists, uh, sort of schools of thinking about this. Um, Michael Hyder um, says, For those unfamiliar with the minimalist-maximalist debate over biblical archaeologists, so the, the minimalists basically believe that the Old Testament has little or no historical value. Uh, they think it was entirely written during or after the Babylonian Exile, around about the 6th century BC. Maximalists, on the other hand, disagree with that view, and to some degree or other, um, they think of the Biblical text as a more historically reliable source, and tend to think that a lot of the texts were uh, written earlier than the Babylonian Exile, uh, at the times when those texts claim themselves to have been written. Uh, So the uh, minimalists tend to look at Jewish history as a sort of myth that the Jews created for themselves in in the situation of the exile in Babylon in order to have group coherence. And the maximalists say no that's too sceptical. And uh, a lot of the minimalists will take the view that we were discussing earlier of I'm not going to trust something that the Bible says about history unless I've got extra biblical data to look at it. Now that's a in, it, in itself, as we said, a principle that we can question about how we know things. Would we do other history like that and so on? But here we, we can kind of take the route of saying, okay, let, let's be skeptical. Let's ask the, the kind of standard historical questions of a text and let's see um, how many times where we can uh, directly or indirectly test what the Old Testament claims about history, um, does it stand up? And the more that that happens, the more confidence we would develop in what those Old Testament texts say, even in cases where we aren't able to test them with extra-biblical data. Here's um, another quick ana- analogy someone's used. It was it, it's a bit like saying if I've got a breadstick, um, it, it, you know, is this a stale bread or not? And I take samples every two inches through the breadstick and I eat them all and I go, mm, mm, yeah, none of those samples are stale. They're, they're, they're all good. Um, but probably there's stale bread somewhere in between there. And I'm not going to eat the bread because it's probably stale somewhere. But everywhere I've tested, it's fine. So on the basis of the actual evidence that we've got, we we probably ought to think that the the bit bit of bread in between the two samples that we're finding, that's probably fine as well, you see. It's a bit like that. Testing out what a a historical text says. When we can test it, 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 it's fine. It's reliable. Uh, then we develop a confidence uh, in those sources of, of testimony as to what what happened. So here's a, a biblical. Yes? The term stale? Uh, is gone off. Husk. or not? Yeah. This smack is good. bit bread, yeah. you smack it, smack it, you smack it, you smack you smack it, you smack it, you it, you Minimalists, the same as 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 the historical saga contained in the Bible. So as a as as of the 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 From Abraham's encounter with God and his journey to Cana, Moses' deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt to the rise and fall of the the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms, uh, was not a miraculous revelation, but a brilliant product of the human imagination. That view that this is a a story the Jews told themselves, uh, probably during the time of the Babylonian exile. Uh, Paul Copan, a Christian philosopher on the other hand, points out that the once doubted historical claims of the Old Testament, a lot of this scepticism about the Bible came uh, in the sort of 19th, 18th, 19th century, particularly uh, German liberal schools of thought, so called, um, who, um, w- well, the discipline of archaeology hadn't really even been properly invented in terms of going to the holy land and trying to dig stuff up and check the stories out it was all done in textual terms and uh sad to say a lot of uh particularly new testament criticism but probably other as well was was influenced by uh, that stream of uh sort of german uh anti-jewish nationalistic uh thought uh, that eventually flowered in the middle of the 20th century in horrible ways that we know uh, they wanted a, you know, an Aryan Jesus and so on who they could think of in terms of the, uh, the Greek classical world rather than rooting and understanding Jesus in a, in a Jewish context, for example. That's an influence there. But anyway, he says that this, these doubted historical claims of the Old Testament, where, whether, the, say, the cost of slaves in the ancient Near East or camels on livestock lists during the time of Abraham Uh, The kingship of David, the mines of Solomon, the metallurgy of the Philistines, uh, the existence of the Hittites. Um, These things were all doubted uh, at one stage, Um, but they all turn out to be anchored in ancient Near East history. We now have extra biblical evidence uh, for these things. So there just one quote from this this quite helpful uh, book. Do historical matters matter to faith? I've um, a good chunky textbook on these matters. Uh, one quote here saying, archaeological evidence, uh, sort of warning, it, it is scattered, it is random, what we, what we happen to dig up, you know. Um, it's incomplete, that evidence, just as the Bible's record is selective and ancient and often theologically uh, orientated. Its uh, purpose is theological uh, as well as, or, uh, you know, historical. <laughs> So any attempt to relate these two sets of information is, is difficult, it's fraught with challenges. It is, um, when you think about it, when we try and do history, we're trying to piece together a puzzle from um, an incomplete jigsaw. <laughs> uh, we're just using the, the bits of the jigsaw that happen to have survived uh, to, this, to this day and that we happened to have discovered already. Jigsaw and we're- Mm-hmm. And we're trying to put together, what, what picture does it show us? We haven't got the whole picture, so it's, it's difficult, and people differ over their interpretations. You know, should this bit go down here? Is that a bit of water or is it a bit of sky? And, and so on. Uh, we've got limited access to the past through the known presently existing chain of its effects. So um, only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history written by the Roman historian Livy He wrote 142 books of Roman history. We've got 35 of them. Um, Tacitus wrote 14 books of Roman history. Uh, uh, Only four and a half of them we have. Uh, We have those in two manuscripts that date to the 9th and the 11th centuries AD. And yet historians do history with these texts. Uh, They have uh, much less evidence for them in terms of the manuscripts and so on than the New Testament documents do, but they're sufficient for doing history with. So I always agree with an atheist when possible. Atheist Victor J. Stenger notes that this, um, an absence of evidence, it's only evidence of absence, only a reason to disbelieve something when the evidence should be there and it's not. As someone uh, made the point earlier you know would we have expected to dig it up yet if there were extra biblical evidence of x y or z Um, only if we should expect to have the evidence and we don't does our lack of that evidence really mean anything Uh, and really we we're just surprised that we have the evidence the massive evidence that we do have it's like wow that survived and we found it <laughs> that should be the attitude, rather than oh, look at all these places where there's no extra-biblical evidence for stuff. You know, you've got to work with the the, the actual evidence that you have, and these uh, arguments from an absence of evidence are really on very shaky ground often. So let's work our way through this with just some highlight examples. There's so much that I could show you, I have to really pick and choose. Um, Abraham. Uh, uh, in Ur, uh, uh, in Sumer, which we'll see, they've got a whole room of stuff at the British Museum from this civilization, including this fantastic piece. It's about this large. We'll see it in the British Museum later. Um, it's often called the Ram in the in, in the thicket. It dates to about 2,600 BC. So we're we're in. 2018 AD, so 2,000 years. This is 2,500 years older than that, so this is like 4,500 years old. This, someone 4,500 years ago made this beautiful, intricate, complex statue. Now, people often look at this and know that it came from the civilization that Abraham came to and went, Oh, yes, uh, you know, when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son and the the well, it's caught in the bush, and it's, gonna, it's the wrong kind of animal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a goat, actually. <laughs> um, from the Royal Cemetery in Ur, it's a marker or it's a large species of wild goat. But it's, it's perched in a bush looking for food, and its horns have got you know, caught up in the, in the bush. Um, so, you know, they, they, they had livestock, and livestock could get caught up in bushes. Uh, but the main thing this just shows us is Abraham came... From a really ancient culture that really did exist. And when you're face to face with something made by someone, you know, four and a half thousand years ago, it just brings alive the fact that, hey, this is real. This is talking about history. This is like people in the past actually lived in (laughs) colour. I know you all think the world turned, you know, from black and white into colour in about 1960 something. (laughs) But no. Uh, Kenneth Kitchen, who's a well-known British uh, Egyptologist, just notes you may have heard the media some years ago had this whole frenzy about the Bible's wrong because there weren't camels. Camels weren't domesticated uh, until later on than the Bible says. And uh, long story short, that's wrong. (laughs) Uh, It's often asserted that the mention of camels and their use is is an anachronism, is out of historical place in Genesis. This charge is simply not true, Uh, there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and use of this animal in the early second millennium BC and even earlier, as the Bible claims. They may not have been in widespread domesticated use in Israel, which is actually the historical research those news stories were based upon, but then the biblical claims about the use of them in livestock in Abraham's time and so on, he's not in Israel. (laughs) <laughs> and so did on. Abraham live? <laughs> yeah. So Abraham, we're putting him. Uh, people disagree, but I'm putting him in round here, around about 1900 BC. So about 2000 BC-ish. So the ram is 700 years when Abraham was there. Uh, yeah. So the the, the the ram is ancient. Yeah. This would have been like a, a historical find during Abraham's day. Like a yeah. We, yeah. we finding Viking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. Um. Of course, the further back in history you go, that principle about we haven't dug it up yet, or does it, has it even survived to be dug up, goes more and more. It's, it's harder and harder to find evidence for things the further back in history you're looking for it, because it's had longer to disintegrate or get destroyed or reused, longer to be buried under other things, um, harder and harder to find, and so on. So, as we move through this timeline, there's more and more data that relates to the biblical stories about things. Uh, Moses, putting him in about 1260 BC. This is a a wall uh, painting from uh, the tomb of a uh, rich guy in Egypt, about 1450 BC. Showing uh, Shemite and Nubian slaves making bricks. And you can tell from the the standard ways of portraying people, uh, Nubian, more dark-skinned. The the Shemite is more uh, the sort of um, what we would now say Jewish ethnicity. um, That there were people of of that ethnicity in Israel working as slaves. uh, uh, um, 1450 BC, I mean, before we're putting Moses at 1260. So this is even before Moses' day. Um, they used slave labour. I think we might see this in the British Museum, the Monepta Stilae, a stone with a sort of public proclamation on it, usually uh, bigging up the achievements of the uh, king or whoever had paid for for it. It's a sort of um, propaganda of its day. But this uh, stone dates to around about 1220 BC. It's the early earliest extra-biblical record of there being a people group called Israel um, is a, a list uh, from, fair, from a particular pharaoh saying, you know, I conquered these people and that people in this place and the other place. Uh, Ashkelon is carried off. Giza is captured. Yonam's made non-existent. Israel is wasted. His seed is not. And that the word there for, um, some of those words are for places. That The form of the word for Israel indicates a people group rather than just a place. Now, you'll notice from this uh, that when um, pharaohs and kings and and so on in the ancient Near East proclaim their victories in battle and so on, they tend to uh, use hyperbole. They tend to overdo it. Um, So this guy says, Israel is wasted. His seed is not. I've completely obliterated them. Well, of course, we know that's not true. (laughs) Um, And actually, even during the day, people reading that would probably know. He doesn't mean it literally. Literally. Uh, he means, I, I comprehensively whooped their backsides. I, I really won a stunning victory over them. I, you know, we, even nowadays, we might say, you know, one sports team slaughtered the other team in the football match. <gasps> what? The, oh, dear. Oh that's horrible. No, no, we don't mean it literally. <laughs> we, we ground the other team into the dust you, monsters!" (laughs) You know, but they used that kind of language, and it's interesting to compare this kind of language in extra-biblical cultures to some of the biblical language, say in the the conquest of Canaan, um, where in the biblical text you can read, you know, um, Joshua and things saying, we completely, we killed everyone, we slaughtered them. And then we had problems with the men wanting to marry the women who had survived. And you think, hang on a minute, didn't three verses ago you just say you killed everyone? Now you're having problems, you're contradicting yourself. Well, when you understand the kind of warfare, rhetorical tradition of the ancient Near East, what the, the Bible just fits in with that pattern, you go, ah, that's what's happening. He's using language in a sort of rhetorical way to say, hooray! and not contradicting himself literally uh, speaking here it is in the, in the in the egypt in the little cuneiform not cuneiform uh, egyptian hieroglyphic uh, israel uh, here on the uh, on the stela so we can say that there were semitic peoples in egypt working as slaves even before moses's day and we know that there was a nation a people group of israel um, and indeed this the place that this was found. Uh, indicates we know there was a group of people in Israel in around the Israel area <laughs> uh, by 1220. So within that window, it's entirely possible that a large group of Semitic people left Egypt and went to end up in Israel. <laughs> um, this isn't, uh, you might call this genetic archaeology, but I came across this article, it was so fascinating that I just had to slip it in here, even though it's not hard and fast archaeology. Um, but according to the Old Testament, only the sons of Aaron can be high priests. Uh, and this uh, Dr. Ab- Abdul Azim Ahmed has done research. Um, and uh, there's an article here uh, talking about his paper. He says, Jewish high priests have always traced their lineage back to Aaron. Uh, this priestly genealogy is indicated through the surname Cohen, the Jewish surname Cohen. Uh, Now, even in the modern day, Jewish priests are chosen from amongst the supposed descendants of Aaron. When the geneticists from Haifa, London, and Arizona universities examined the DNA of those with the Cohen surname, they indeed found a unique genetic marker that indicated a single parental ancestor. And they've called it the Aaron haplotype in genetic speak. Um, So that's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Samson... The strong man, you know, Samson and the lion and all that, um, about 1100 BC. Here we have an 11th century BC stone seal. Now this is uh, this is large, uh, uh, it, when projecting, it's actually quite a small thing. Um, you know the old-fashioned thing of when you sent a letter, you dribble wax to close the letter and then you might have a ring or a stamp and you stamp it with the the, the crest of your royal house or whatever and deliver the letter so you know it's not been tampered with and people know who it's come from and so on. They had the same tradition uh, in the ancient Near East although they didn't use wax, uh, they used clay and made an impression with a seal or a ring, signet ring or whatever in the clay. Um, This is a stone seal depicting a man fighting, a man fighting a lion, to be four legs and a tail, Um, It's similar to other depictions that we know are depictions of lions uh, in the art of the period. Uh, It was discovered at Beth Shemesh, the House of the Sun, in 2012. And that location, the dating of it, the image on it, uh, matched the Samson and lion encounter in Judges 14, which is said to have taken place around that time, around that location, uh, and to be an event of a man wrestling a lion. Now, of course, you can't look at this and say, look, it's a picture of Samuel wrestling a lion. That proves the Bible story. Because it doesn't say on it, you know, this is Samson wrestling the lion. It could be some other guy. You might say maybe it's a local folklore story that got incorporated into the Bible. Or, you know, you could have different ways of interpreting the same physical artifact. Uh, But nonetheless, it is quite interesting uh, that we have this biblical story of a Samson wrestling the lion and from that culture in the right place at the right period you find this depiction of a man wrestling a a lion. Um, Judges 16 tells the the famous story of Samson's death in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon in Gaza. They captured him, they blinded him uh, and they were putting him on display for, you know, public jeering at and so on. Look, look at our captive. And they chain him between the columns that are holding up the temple roof. And uh, Samson prays to God to give him strength. And he pulls on his chain and you know, pushes these columns over. And the whole thing collapses. And he takes out the, the leadership of the, the oppressing uh, Philistine uh, forces. Well, the Gaza temple of uh, Dagon hasn't been excavated. We haven't dug it up uh, because there's a modern city (laughs) there. Now people are living above it and don't want their houses dug up. You see, this is one of the problems for archaeology. But there is another Philistine temple at a place called Tel Uh, Kessa. Tel just means a mound or a hill. Uh, When archaeologists come across a tel, a mound, they usually think, aha, People have kept building on top of a building on top of a building here that's been settled for a long time. There's a mound. Let's go dig it up. Um, It was destroyed in the early 10th century BC. And here is a a picture from inside this other Philistine temple. And you can see in the centre of the temple how they have two pillars that hold the roof up. Uh, In the case of the Tel Kisa temple, they're about seven foot uh, apart. Um now of course we don't know how far apart the ones in the de- the other temple were, but it's likely that they would use the same archaeological the same architectural form or structure. They, you know, they had a typical architecture of a typical house or a typical temple or whatever. Um so uh, you could well take uh, this Philistine temple as an indication that at least the biblical description of the architecture of a Philistine temple is correct whether or not it's right about the story what happened there you can at least say well, it's getting the architecture right now that's interesting because say someone writing making up this story as a myth for the Jewish nation in the sixth century BC in Babylon as the minimalists say how would they know about the architectural details of Philistine temples from 1100 BC, six, seven hundred years ago. They couldn't look it up on Wikipedia. No one had invented archaeology as a discipline, yet. Yeah? So the fact that they get it right, I mean, is that just a coincidence? Or maybe there's an indication there that um, maybe that text was written closer to that Philistine culture than the minimalists think that it was. Well, that's how I'd interpret it. But you know, um, King David, who we mentioned earlier, King David. We're getting into the 10th century BC. Now, the United Kingdom, uh, not of Great Britain, but of uh, Israel and Judah. There's indeed various archaeological instances of naming uh, David, uh, some more controversial than others. Particularly uh, significant is this uh, so-called Tell Dan inscription. Again, that word Tell, the mound, the place where it was found, the mound at Dan, an inscription found there on a broken bed of rock, uh, dated to the 9th century BC. Uh, and it's in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem, so we won't be able to see it today. But I have a little video about it. Um, Kenneth Kitchen, who I was mentioned before, Egyptologist, also notes, uh, he argues that there, there's a phrase he thinks, Heights of David, um, in an Egyptian list of places that Egyptian kings had gone to war with and conquered. Um, that dates, uh, if this is indeed correct, uh, it dates from about 925 BC, which is less than 50 years after the supposed timeline of the the death of uh, King David in the Bible. Um, So that would be a reference, as he says, within living memory uh, of the man in an extra-biblical source. In 2005, uh, excavations in the hometown of Goliath, according to the Bible, uh, the Philistine city of Gath, revealed a Semitic uh, inscription on a bit of pottery dating to the 10th, 9th century BC, uh, bearing an Indo-European name that resembled, but was not identical with, Goliath. Uh, The head of the excavations here, I'm quoting, says the inscription shows us that David and Goliath's story reflects the cultural reality of the time. He's saying, when the Bible says, you know, a Philistine had the name Goliath, it's using the right kind of name that we now know that people had from that time. We found a piece of pottery from the time from, from a Philistine city that had a very similar name on it. It is not, um, this pot belongs to Goliath. You don't tend to dig up things. That <laughs> you would be very lucky to dig up things that say that. Uh, but uh, we can say, again, in terms of the sort of the right cultural understanding, getting names right, again. Would you get the names right if you're making it up in the 6th century B.C.? What would be your source of information? Uh, and so on. Uh, back to, one, again, one of these little seal impressions, called a, a Um Again, you can see the, uh, the ruler there giving you the actual size of the thing. Well, it's just an indication um, dated to the 10th century B.C. that there was uh, a, an organized government system... Uh, that uh, whoever was king at the time wasn't just a little tribal chief but there was a a large sort of extended civilization uh, at the time. Um, These boule dating to the 10th century BC lends general support to the historical truth veracity of David and Solomon as recorded in the Hebrew biblical texts um, according to this uh, professor of anthropology. And uh, Alain Nazar with the the wall that she attributes to King Solomon. Again, the wall doesn't come with an inscription saying, uh, uh, I, Solomon, had this wall built. But she's saying that we've got this biblical story about there was a king in this period who had enough power to build a big fortification in this place at this time. And now we've dug up something at this place from the right time that matches the description in the Bible. Simplest explanation, they're one and the same thing. Um, it verifies the account. It doesn't prove it. Uh, you might be able to interpret it another way, but probably the most straightforward interpretation is to say, yeah, look, that's what we would expect from the Bible, and lo and behold, that's what we find in the archaeology. Talking about uh, King Solomon, of course, came after uh, King David, uh, about 980 to 927 BC. Uh, you have heard of uh, the story of King Solomon's Mines, mainly, mainly because of the Ryder Haggard novel, King Solomon's Mines, and the films, multiple films, have been made of the, the adventure story of King Solomon's Mines. Uh, again, this was considered uh, these uh, Edomite copper mines that are pictured here. This, this whole mound is a sort of copper mining area. Uh, was considered to be a late Bronze Age site related to the New Kingdom of Egypt, so dating it to the 13th, 12th centuries BC. Uh, But the uh, uh, archaeologists investigating it more recently, uh, they've done uh, carbon dating on various samples uh, at the site, uh, particularly the donkey dung, because they used donkeys to carry uh, the copper that had been uh, dug up and smelted and things uh, away from the site. And you feed the donkeys and the donkeys go to the loo and you get donkey dung preserved there and you can carbon date it because it's organic material uh, and that carbon dating showed that the mining camp's heyday, when it was most active was actually in the 10th century BC. Uh, so it, it, its uh, most active period does date from the right biblical period uh, to match up with the biblical stories of uh, David and Solomon. Dr. Thomas Levy uh, says this re- research represents a a coming together, a confluence coming together between the archaeological and scientific data and the Bible. Uh, there are a, a, a hundred buildings, including a fortress, in the middle of this 24 acre of land that's now just covered with black slag uh, from the mining. Archaeologist Ben Yosef says that uh, if the Bible's claim that David brought the, the Edomites to heal is accurate. He says there's a serious possibility that Jerusalem got its wealth from taxing these mining operations. And the Bible says that Solomon embarked on a big building campaign including the first temple, of course, Uh, have a look at 1 Kings 7. Uh, Many of the implements used in the worship in the temple were made of bronze uh, which requires copper to form the alloy. Uh, Bronze is an alloy a mixture of different uh, metals uh, One Kings seven forty six. I just love the name of this. We'll see this later today. This is the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser the Third. Dum dum dum. It's like something out of a horror movie, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the Mummy. Right? Um, no, this is a uh, king of Assyria, Shalmaneser the Third. Uh, he reigned in the ninth century uh, BC, and it's this uh, this. Uh, Carved uh, rock here, he is Solomon the Third down there. Uh, the time of the two kingdoms when uh, Israel has been split into Israel and, and Judah. And uh, one of the panels on it, which I've shown here, uh, features the earliest ancient depiction, probably the earliest ancient depiction of a biblical figure, uh, probably the biblical King Jehu, king of Israel, uh, mentioned in 2 Kings 9 to 10. You might just about see him. Here's uh, his, his head. Here's his arms. Is his backside and his legs. He's kneeling down in front of Shalemanser III. Uh, they have their royal seals above them. The Shalemanser have this sort of eagle-shaped thing. And above uh, this side, there's a circle with a star in it. Which what I think, you know, Star of David, Jewish. You know. uh, some people say, well, it might be an emissary of King Jehu. Uh, and it's talking about, uh, but it's talking about uh, the tribute uh, in the writing uh, above it in cuneiform here it's talking about the tribute of Jehu son of Omri I received from him silver and gold and a golden bowl and a golden vase and this that and the other uh, they were a vassal state at that time here he is again uh, kneeling down in front of the, the king giving him gifts saying be nice to me I'll give you nice stuff and here is King Jehu there in the northern kingdom of Israel Now we'll see quite a lot in the British Museum related to this story of uh, Senera Kerib. Uh, when one uh, Sargon II, the second king of Assyria, died in 705 BC, various subject vassal states tried to uh, rebel and throw off their shackles. Uh, Hezekiah you heard King Hezekiah in the Old Testament, king of Judah, stopped paying tribute, like Jehu had been paying the tribute. He stopped that. Uh, entered into uh, a league with Egypt to say, Come on, uh, let's fight against uh, this oppressive Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. Uh, while in uh, 703 BC, uh, Sonarachareb, Sargon's son, began various campaigns to quash this opposition to Assyrian rule. And Hezekiah expected the Egyptians to come riding to his aid, and they didn't. Uh oh. <laughs> so here's Hezekiah in about 700 BC. Around about the time of prophet Isaiah. And here's uh, Sennacherib. Uh, 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and reigned 29 years. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Didn't serve him. Um, here is another one of those seals. Little seal. This is the seal of King Hezekiah. Belonging, it says on there, it says, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah is his personal seal. There's uh, various other pictures of Hezekiah's tunnel, which you can visit as a tourist attraction if you're ever lucky enough to go to Jerusalem and walk through it. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them to kings. Uh, These pictures of the slaughter of the Assyrian army upon uh, Judah Uh, come from uh, 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 panelled war reliefs from uh, Sennacherib's palace. Uh, And these panelled war reliefs are in the British Museum. There's a whole room of them that tells the story, uh, particularly of the Assyrian army conquering the second major city in Judah, a place called Lachish. In 701, it was captured by Sennacherib as he was moving through the land on his way to conquer, flatten, Jerusalem and do the same thing to Jerusalem that he'd done to them. And as, as he's in the process of this, the, the Bible says um, in Isaiah, uh, Sennacherib received a report that Teharka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against Sennacherib. So another, another guy's rebelling as well. And when he heard it, he sent messengers, uh, Sennacherib sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, say to the king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. So he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm coming for you. I've got to go and deal with this guy first, because he's just started kicking off. But I'm coming back for you. I'll be back, you know. And it's like, he'll be back. Um, again, uh, we didn't have any extra biblical evidence of the existence of this guy uh, until discovering this statue of uh, Tihaka standing underneath the, the ram representation of his God, uh, him, um, the god Ammon. Uh, we can see this in the British Museum later. So um, Isaiah says, well, do trust God. Don't fear the king. Uh, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He won't enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He'll not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for the sake of my servant David. Uh, talking of Isaiah, most recent find that I will now show you—one uh, of those little seal impressions. Public, publication of this discovery was this year, belonging to Isaiah the prophet. It probably says. Um, there's a little bit of smudging you can see here. There's actually a kind of thumbprint that's that smudged it, and someone made the impression, which covers up a couple of the letters uh, uh, on one of the words. Um, but it still seems uh, very plausible that the most plausible interpretation of what it says on here uh, is belonging to Isaiah the prophet and combined with the fact that it was found just a few feet away from the same place that that Hezekiah seal was found in Jerusalem at the same uh, stratum, the same dating close to the Hezekiah one that association also gives uh, credibility to the fact that who you know who else is it going to be kind of that we know of anyway. The Sanerokarab prism in the British Museum tells this story about Sanerokarab and and Israel from Sanerokarab's point of view. And he says this, As for Hezekiah the Judite, who didn't submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, By levelling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot, by mining and tunnels and breaches, I besieged and I took them. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. That is, he didn't, not laying a siege ramp against the walls, not, not besieging the city. But camping around to stop people leaving or coming in. Earthworks, the one coming out, you tell that because he qualifies it, it says, the one coming out of the city gate I turned back to his misery. So it's like just keeping them there. His, his cities which I had despoiled I cut off from his land and gave them to various people. And then I went home, he basically says. I think, yeah, hang on a minute though, what, you, you just, what, what happened with Jerusalem and Hezekiah then? It doesn't say, and I took Jerusalem and I slaughtered Hezekiah and took his family hostage and, he's <laughs> like, that's a very interesting omission when you compare it with the biblical story of what happens. News. Particularly again, compare, you can compare the archaeology around Jerusalem with the archaeology of, of Lachish, which we dug up. So here's the, here's the Assyrian assault ramp built in 701 against the wall of Lachish for the mar- soldiers to march up over the walls. Um, there were ramparts and everything. We've got in the British Museum, we've got arrowheads. Remember Isaiah saying an arrow won't be shot against the city and things? We've got uh, slingshots and things from the archaeology of that date, of that siege of the city. None of that at Jerusalem. At that historical period, and this is an absence of evidence argument, you'll note. But I, I would suggest we, we can dig. We would expect to have found that evidence if it were there, and it's not. Um, the Greek historian Herodotus here, although a bit of his nose seems to have fallen off, uh, he's writing in about the fifth century BC. So a couple of hundred years later, he tells this story about the destruction of Sennacherib's army. Uh, what he calls the entrance to Egypt. Just check your map again as to where Israel is, uh, what countries it's lying between. Notice where Egypt is, and then you have the peninsula, and then you have Israel on the way to the Assyrian Babylonian empires, Assyria. Um, so Herod is saying Snareb's army was destre- destroyed at the entrance to Egypt, a plague of field mice, he says. Chewed up all of the leather bowstrings and quivers uh, and shield straps and things of the army. And he attributes this destruction to divine intervention in his histories. So it's not the same story that the Bible tells, but it is a story of a divine intervention that uh, stops the, the uh, army from functioning. Um, the biblical story. Uh, it involves fewer mice and, and more soldiers actually being dead from the angel of the Lord coming. But we can compare the biblical and the extra biblical evidence from uh, Sinaira Carib's own contemporary account and from later uh, Greek historian and so on. We can put these things together and we can contrast what happened to Lachish and Jerusalem and we can say that unlike Lachish, Sinaira did not attack Jerusalem. There was no ramp or shooting of arrows against Jerusalem. Sennacherib didn't take Jerusalem. The Assyrian army was somehow suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention. It wasn't a battle, He wasn't defeated in battle. And Sennacherib did return home to Nineveh, and he didn't come back to finish the job as he had before. He specifically said, I'm going to go and deal with this guy, and I'm coming back for you. I came back specifically to get them, and then didn't, and then went home. <laughs> the Lachish letters are in the British Museum, and we'll see them later. Uh, so we're coming on now to talking about the, the uh, six, sort of six hundred, five hundred BC, the Babylonian Empire. Uh, they, they'd survived the Assyrians, who had failed to conquer Jerusalem. but now later we have the time of the, the uh, exile into Babylon under the Babylonians, particularly under King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then we have the the time of the books like Daniel in the Old Testament describing the time of the exile. Um, Here are a few uh, just pictures of various artefacts from the the culture uh, of Babylon. It was really quite an astounding uh, huge world power capable of uh, building monumental... uh, architecture and huge cities and so on Uh, again a lot of uh, remains of babylon uh, in various museums including the british museum these kind of uh, fired pottery uh, tiles on the on the gates and so on carvings of uh, various gods and deities statues which again the world wasn't in black and white statues used to be painted in the ancient world, we're used to thinking them as grey because a lot of the paint has tended to rub off over the years. But you can see the the blue painting of the irises and things. Statuary in the ancient world was in a glorious technicolor. The Greek historians would describe the building of Babylon to one queen, uh, Queen uh, Samiramat, uh, a queen mother in Assyria, who actually had we now know nothing to do at all with the building of Babylonia, um, and that's. Uh, bears out what the Bible says in Daniel 4, for example, it says, uh, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, is this not the great Babylon I have built for a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Uh, so the, the Bible is, is right in attributing it to Nebuchadnezzar. And we have remains, of, for example, of even building bricks that have inscribed on them, um, Here's one um, that says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who cares for Aeschyla and Ez- Ezida, eldest son of uh, Nabopolsar, the previous king of, of Babylon. It's like, I'm building this. I'm the great builder. Um, other uh, cuneiform inscriptions talking about Nebuchadnezzar's wish to glorify a particular god through building works uh, in the capital. Um, Again, another uh, cuneiform text on a a clay cylinder talking about his building projects. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar is really proud of his his building work on Babylon uh, that's noted in the Bible as well. Um, This is a bit dark because this is my photo through the cabinet of the British Museum. Um, Part of, again, the Babylon Chronicle, sort of a diary of events for that year from the royal palace, uh, talking about uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar replacing the crown. Uh, 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 the Babylonian um, um, being in charge uh, when the previous guy dies, and marching on Egypt and talking about uh, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had ceased to pay tribute and Nebuchadnezzar's army besieged Jerusalem and captures it uh, in 567 BC and precipitating the, the Jewish uh, exile. So we, we don't just have the biblical accounts of the Jewish exile, we have the Babylonian accounts of the Jewish uh, exile. Uh, even down, again, to very rarely you get this, uh, but here's another particular name. This was a, uh, a recent, uh, well, fairly recently that someone in the British Museum actually noticed this on, on this bit of pottery in 2007. Um, and he was visiting and uh, looking at these, uh, you know, old things in the British Museum, doing research, and suddenly noticed uh, on this the, the name uh, these old names are great to pronounce, aren't they? Uh, Nabu Ushkin. 2,500-year-old <laughs> uh, inscription here. Uh, he's described as the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II, the, the king of Babylon, the king of the Exodus. Uh, and he thought, hang on a minute. Um, that's mentioned in the Bible, isn't it? He checks, checks out uh, Jeremiah chapter 39. And although it's because they didn't have standardized spelling in the ancient world, but it references the same guy, uh, uh, Nebu Sarskim, um, sort of a shortened form here, uh, mentioned in the book of Jeremiah as the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II. Uh, the tablet's dated to the 10th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, 12 years before the siege of Jerusalem. And Dr. Jessa, who made this discovery, uh, says, finding something like this tablet where we see a person mentioned in the Bible making... In this case, an everyday payment to the temple in Babylon. And quoting the exact date is quite extraordinary. And it is quite extraordinary. Uh, King Jehoiakim, uh, There's a record uh, from the Babylonian palaces. You know, they had people uh, kept the royalty kind of hostage. Um, and uh, there was a, uh, an allotment of uh, food from the king's table uh, to his political prisoners. And um, We've got the, uh, the Bible mentioned, um, this uh, king after uh, Nebuchadnezzar treated the captives uh, better, he was, his name was Evil Merodoch. Um Evil doesn't mean nasty and bad in this context, it's just what the uh, Babylonian word. Um, he spoke kindly to Joachim, gave him a more prominent seat and uh, there was a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion each day, all the days of his life. And we have the list of the things that he was given from the king's table to Jehoiakin: What, 15 litres of sesame oil for Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and so on. So when the Bible says, you yeah, the king was giving him an allotted amount of provisions to live off. And we have the Babylonian record of the provisions he was living off. We know the guy's diet. <laughs> Isn't that astounding? You know, uh, sesame oil for this and, and that uh, and the other. Eliakim, the steward of Jehoiakim, mentioned in 2 Kings 19.2, another one of those little seal impressions that says, the property of Eliakim, steward of Jehoiakim. There he is. Um, Remember what we were saying about a lot of the Minimists say um, this is all made up in the time of the Babylonian uh, exile, uh, including that would be the book of Daniel, say. It is interesting just to, to note as a sidebar, there is, in terms of manuscript evidence, uh, we've got a manuscript uh, from uh, Qumran, the same place when the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. There's a fragment of, of uh, the Book of Daniel there. Uh, well, eight manuscripts uh, from Daniel there, including one, the earliest one, dated to about 125 BC. But that's in Qumran uh, in Israel, and you need time to uh, to copy and distribute. Uh, these texts over time, so if these things meant to be written in in Babylon and copied and so on and, and text there 's arguments about um, would this be you know too soon and too surprising to find a manuscript this this early of a book that 's meant to have been uh, written uh, not all that uh, long uh, before, so there are sort of textual arguments as well as arguments about well, this guy is getting so much information about the sort of culture. Uh, the fact that it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar that did the building and not Queen so-and-so that all the, the uh, Greek historians incorrectly thought, for example. And then Why does he get it right and the Greek historians get it wrong? You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the, in the kiln and the fire, throwing them into the fire because they won't worship the golden statue. You've seen the VeggieTales episode when they're in the chocolate factory and they won't bow down to the golden bunny. Uh, VeggieTales is still a thing these days, isn't it? It's, well, it's on TV in Britain anyway. Um... Uh, Again, um, maybe take this with a pinch of salt, but we we do know that burning people as a penalty for crime appears in law codes from the period, uh, from Babylon. Uh, We know that other Babylonian monarchs had used burning for executing uh, people on occasion. And there is an inscription on a a five-sided clay prism found in Babylon uh, that lists uh, three men who have uh, names that you could take as being the same names as these f- uh, figures from the Daniel uh, story. You remember in the Daniel story, they have their Hebrew names and they're given Babylonian names uh, to kind of enculturate in- them into the Babylonian uh, culture. Um, uh, let's have a look here. So um, we've got a name that might be the equivalent of the, the Aramaic name of Begnego. Uh, another name on the list is Hananu, Commander of the King's Merchants, the name Hananu. That might be the Babylonian equivalent for the Hebrew name Hananiah, Hananun, Hananun. And you know in Hebrew you only, you only have the, the consonants and not the vowels, you don't have the A-E-I-O-U. Uh, they only have the, um, the consonantal letters and you have to work out what the vowels are. So you can often interpret a name or spell it in slightly different ways because of that as well. And then you're dealing with translating from one language into another. But where you get these very kind of similar language constructions, uh, that's quite interesting. Um, and another name found on this, this list from Babylon is uh, uh, Meshelim Marduk. You know, Marduk is the name of one of the gods we've come across already, an official to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, If Mardoch's left out of that, we know that's the name of a god. We we get the name Meshulim, Michel, Michael, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach. That's where that sort of name is coming from. So maybe those are the same people, but maybe they're not. But at the very least, you can kind of say, again, Daniel is getting right the kind of names that you might end up with when you're translating uh, continental Hebrew names into uh, Babylonian translations of them in Babylonian texts he's getting that kind of detail um, pretty on the nose and the story of Daniel in the lion's den which I think it should be called Daniel in the lion preserve really um, kings at that time this is from the British Museum as well you might be able to see here people shooting at a they got a shield here and a lion uh, leaping up at them um, in ancient Assyria certainly lion hunting was the sport of kings um, in medieval times, in Britain, kings used to keep forests and go stag hunting. Or in Game of Thrones, they go they go boar hunting and discover that's not a good idea if you want to stay on the on the throne. Uh, in Assyria, it was lion hunting, symbolic of the ruling monarch's duty to protect and fight for his people and so on. They had these pictures of the king going lion hunting. Uh, it's like President Putin releasing the pictures of him on his summer skiing holiday you know, bare-chested riding horseback, like, I am the strong man in charge of the nation, and all that stuff. We have uh, these sculpted reliefs in the British Museum, illustrating the sporting exploits of a particular Assyrian king in the 7th century BC, uh, they come from Nineveh. Uh, So we know that kings at that sort of period might well keep lions in order to go lion hunting and have a sort of lion preserve and thing. Which you know, you can think, how come Daniel gets thrown into a den of lions? Like well it's probably because they're the King's Lions at the King's Lion Preserve who are being kept there. And he just says, Oh let's well let's let's use the lions to punish this guy. Don't feed them for a few days. Chuck the guy into the Lion Preserve. (laughs) See how he does. Uh, So it fits again culturally with would would kings have had access to lions in ancient Babylon? Quite plausibly. Uh, The book of Daniel and Belshazzar. Belshazzar's feast towards the the end of the historical portions of the the book of Daniel here. Uh, Daniel 5. And then at Belshazzar's command, you know, Belshazzar sees this vision of the hand writing the strange words on the wall and he's having this feast using using cups and goblets from the temple in Jerusalem and sort of uh, sacrilege of them and he doesn't know what it means he's had this vision and you know he's, oh Daniel's got a reputation for interpreting dreams and visions call Daniel and he interprets it and basically says uh you've had it mate <laughs> it's all over for you uh, but he's so you know he's so kind of overwhelmed by the thing that he, he says uh, Then at Belshazzar's command Daniel was clothed in purple, rich people could afford purple of course, a gold chain placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now that is a really interesting detail because for years people argued over why does the king of Babylon make Daniel the third highest person in the kingdom, why not the second? What's going on there? Well, Actually, later, we've dug up stuff that fills in the background here. King Nab- Nabonidus ha- has a, an inscription that mentions his co-regent, Belshazzar, my firstborn son, the offspring of my heart. What had actually happened is Nabonidus was the king, but he decided to kind of retire. I'll, I'll stay the official head of state, as it were, but I'm going to go and devote myself to religious Uh, devotion and I'll leave my son in charge now he's in charge he's the king Uh, he's the second in the kingdom you know he's really in charge because I don't I don't want to be bothered but you know nominally I'm the head of state just like the queen here is nominally the head of state but everything's run by Theresa May and the government that we have at the moment so that's why Belshazzar only has the power to make Daniel third highest in the kingdom, because actually he is only second highest, even though he's running everything and he's king. Because his father, the king, is off doing this religious devotion stuff that he talks about in his own uh, inscriptions. He's off at the temples in Sipa, uh presenting offerings to the gods and so on. So that fills out the background. It's so, like, oh, that's why Daniel got that detail absolutely right I mean, we didn't know that he got it absolutely right until we dug up those things in recent, comparatively recent history. <coughs> Jeremiah, um, there's another one of these seals, these are great when you find a seals because they have people's names on them and you can date them from you know, where you find them in the dig and the pottery around them and the coins around them and so on, so you get a name and a date in a location Uh, And you can compare that with the biblical record of people's names, dates and locations and compare them up. Um, So Jeremiah, talk about the prophet Jeremiah who we mentioned earlier, prophesying to the people. And his messages, his prophecies are recorded according to the Bible by a man named Barak son of Neriah. Mentions it in Jeremiah 36, 4 etc. Here is the seal impression of Barak son of Neriah. From the right place, date. Etc. So here is the serial impression of the, the guy who actually wrote the book of Jeremiah that we have in our Bibles. And here is uh, King Cyrus of Persia inv- inv- invaded Babylon. He was the guy who got rid of uh, Belshazzar. He was the end of Belshazzar. He took over, came and invaded. And he left behind one of these bits of propaganda saying, how happy all the Babylonians were to be invaded uh, by King Cyrus of Persia, I entered Babylon as a friend and I established my royal residence in the palace of the princes amid jubilation and rejoicing. Everyone was so happy to be invaded. My numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace. <laughs> because there were numerous troops walking around Babylon. I also restored the cities of the other side of the Tigris to their hitherto long ruined temples. I had... The previously conquered people beyond the Tigris and those nations that Babylon had conquered. I had those cities restored, including their temples. Which biblical story are we now reminded of? Leaving Babylon, going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Beyond. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Yeah. I also gathered up their one-time inhabitants and returned them to their homeland. So it was it was Cyrus conquering Babylonia, which, as had been prophesied, allowed Israel, children of Israel, to go back uh, to their land, back to Jerusalem, and to rebuild, recolonize, and reestablish themselves in the Holy Land. Wow. And that's just dipping your toe in, you know. (laughs) Um, Every time I do this I have to look up what have they now discovered that I really want to include and good grief, which bit am I going to have to drop in order to fit that in and which is the most exciting discoveries. Let's do a little uh, wrap up and you can ask me some questions if you have any and we'll see where we are timing wise. So we can say this, there, there are many, many examples of archaeology that, that fits with, that coheres with, what's in the Bible. And sometimes that's at the level of getting specific details about the the general sort of culture of a time and place, right? All the way through to, you know, proving that a particular person lived at a particular time and date. Um, And the Bible seems to be right about these things, um, even... Uh, well back in history, back beyond the Jewish exile in Babylon. And one could very well question whether if those stories preceding Babylon are meant to be made up at that time, as the Minimalists say, that seems very unlikely that they would get these details correct. Um, And if they are, and if it was indeed written at that time, at the very least, they clearly had access to very reliable Records of what happened a long time ago in the past. Uh, uh, And either way, there is therefore an argument that, as we've said, in those instances where we are able to test the biblical texts, they seem to do very well against the evidence. And that increases our confidence in what they claim, even in those instances where we can't, you know, check it out in extra biblical terms just because it's proven reliable in so many other instances when we can um, check it out. So, and, and that's the kind of standard argument you would make for the, the, the general historical reliability of any text from the ancient world, whether it's written by you know, Caesar or Livy or Tacitus or Herodotus or whoever. Uh, so we're not treating the Bible as, oh, we've got to trust it because it's a special, I think it's a special holy text kind of thing. That's a whole other theological argument. We're just treating it in terms of, well, let's do standard historical investigation of this and see how it stands up. Um, And the Bible stands up very well in a way that um, you could compare, you know, do a compare and contrast with, I don't know, the Book of Mormon or something. Yeah, look up my YouTube playlist on the Book of Mormon and uh, see (laughs) what the archaeology has to say about that. I mentioned in a few places, because sometimes I do a talk about Old Testament fulfilled prophecy and what archaeology says about that, and I just dropped in here and there a few indications about, you know, there was, there was the exile and they returned from exile and that was prophesied, uh, and so on, and it came true, and you can show that from the extra-biblical text that it, that it came true, and of course you want to ask, what, what was the prophecy really made earlier, <laughs> rather than written after the fact, and so on, standard questions to ask, but Whatever you make of the sort of fulfilled prophecy aspect of that, again, it's showing that those, those biblical passages, even if they've been, they've been put in terms of prophecy and you're sceptical that it's genuine prophecy, at the very least, you can say that the information in those prophecies is accurate. You may think, oh, it's probably, you know, prophecy is not possible. It must have been written after the event. Well, okay, but at least recognise that it's getting the details right <laughs> um, where you can test it. And of course, that then leads on to a further conundrum. If this you know, prophetic passage in Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever gets the historical details right when we can check them, and that increases our, our confidence that it's, it's probably right about other historical claims that it makes, or should do, yeah? Well, one of the historical claims that that text makes is that this information came in a prophecy that was said before the event happened. So the fact that it's reliable where we can test it out is actually evidence for the fact that it is genuine fulfilled prophecy. Is it enough evidence to overturn someone's scepticism about prophecy? Well, it depends upon how sceptical they are about prophecy in the first place. we broaden out into bigger worldview questions like, can miracles happen? Well, I suppose that depends upon whether or not there's a God and so on. But then we want questions about is there a God or not to be informed by the evidence, and some of the evidence comes from whether or not there's fulfilled prophecy, because if there is, a really good explanation of fulfilled prophecy is that there's a God. And so you get into this whole, kind of tied up in this whole debate, but you see how going to the the secular kind of historical questions and the secular data removes you, I think, pretty strongly from the biblical sort of minimalism type of scepticism and opens up, begins to push you towards, actually, a whole discussion about that, that separate but related question of, well, actually, is the Bible revelation in some sense? Does it at least contain revelation rather than just human records of things that happened in the past and their theological interpretation of it? Um, but at least opens up you can't really get into the details and saying yeah it keeps being right about this that and the other but i'm still going to maintain my skepticism that this was genuine prophecy there's something of attention in doing that uh, that we can point to to open up the open up the discussion Um, and the very least we say there is um, the fact that the bible reports this accurate information does actually lend some support to the idea that it accurately reports the prophecies And if it's doing that, then that opens up a whole other discussion, you see.